Hi everyone. Welcome back to Danger on Delmarva. Before I begin, I do just want to let everybody know my family and I have been under the weather for a little while now. Though my voice may seem scratchier than normal at times, I do apologize. Um, but today's topic is something I really enjoy learning about. So yeah, I really wanted to get this episode out. I've been looking at it for a while. Um, and just coincidentally, a few nights ago while I was um, you know, working on research on this, I, without even knowing it, came across a documentary on YouTube that really sparked my curiosity some more. So um, I'm getting this out um, as soon as I could and felt that I could record. Um, so to introduce myself, if you've not been here before, my name is Rhonda Granny Jefferson, and this podcast and video um, explores tragedies and disasters that have occurred on the Delmarva Peninsula. Now, this area is in the mid-Atlantic region of the United States, and it encompasses Delaware, Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the north of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. Now, through all of the episodes that I cover, I want to take you throughout the Delmarva Peninsula and explore the paths that wind around our little piece of heaven, um, which sometimes is not quite so heavenly. But if you live here, I think you, you would love it. Um, we have beautiful beaches. The state of Delaware has tax-free shopping, so that's easily accessible to the areas around. And, you know, very personal to me, we have one of the best children's hospitals in the world. And then, of course, currently, Delmarva, more specifically Delaware, is home to our current president. So this episode can be heard on podcast apps as well as on YouTube. So sometimes I may use the word video, sometimes I may say episode, but you may hear some things used kind of interchangeably in regards to that. But whichever format that you do choose to listen to, um, if you do have a chance, if you could follow or subscribe, um, and if you have options like rate um, or provide feedback in any of those, um, if you could take a moment to do so, that helps with the algorithm algorithm so that other people can more easily find the podcast or video. Um, so it just kind of helps you know, the channel grow and more people be able to find this type of content a little bit more um, easily. Also, any episode of this channel may include events such as injury or death, so I just want to make everybody aware in case this is not the type of content that you want to listen to. Also, while I do upload the podcast as soon as it's available, it does take a while to upload the YouTube video once I try to go in and put in some pictures and things like that. So if you are looking for the YouTube episode and you see that the um, podcast was just uploaded, give it a little while so that it has time um, for editing and I can get it uploaded. So um, just generally, all of the sources that I use will be listed in the description of the episode. Um, sometimes if I am, well, if you are watching the YouTube um, channel, 
sometimes there will be educational material used on that, and that is used under a fair use license. And one note I did want to make about these sources today is actually a rather large newspaper kept referring to this flight by the wrong flight number, flight 606 and not 605. So that was kind of interesting. So now that I mentioned that this was a flight, you have an idea of exactly what we'll be covering today. And we are covering a flight from Eastern Airlines. Now, the event itself is going to be taking place in one of the most northwestern parts of the Eastern Shore. You know, the Eastern Shore really falls into an area of the United States where you know, there might be some local or regional airfields, but the major airports are usually a good distance away, depending exactly where you live on the shore. From where I live, it's about two hours in any direction. But we are pretty close to air routes, so we do see anything from our local crop dusters and beach advertisements to sometimes air-based traffic flying overhead and airport traffic as well. Now, if you've listened before, you may know that I do like to add some personal experiences and memories to you know, these episodes to make, for me, it you know, really, really transports you to the shore. But while doing this particular episode, something just kind of came up that I wasn't really expecting. When I mentioned the beach advertisements, it brought me to someone that I knew. Um, a number of years ago, actually, I knew him from Sunday school and church, and he was a pilot of one of those planes that flew over the beach and he was he was involved in a crash and he did not make it and so while writing this the first memory is I started to smile because I saw him as a little boy and he was always rather serious and that just like added to his adorable factor but then just as quickly that moment left and I thought about the accident and you know, it, it set forth a realization that he never got to live the rest of his life. And we don't know if he would have lived another 70 or another seven years, but this is time that he and his family won't have. And so that kind of brings today's episode home even more for me. You know, so when accidents of any kind happen, it's just one incident that changes everything for so many people. And that's what occurred in Cecil County, Maryland on one May day in 1947. Now, if you are watching, I will be putting a map up of the area on the Eastern Shore and specifically Cecil County where this plane did go down. And you'll definitely see what I mean by saying it's on the northwestern part of the shore. Um, now, this is one of the few areas on the shore that actually has a little bit of elevation as normally. We're at very flat land, especially as you approach the beach areas. You know, so pretty much you know, around the United States, you probably can't get, get much flatter than some of the areas around here. You know, I mean, like, there's no elevation. So, um, you know, I've actually had family members and friends get stranded on certain islands of the shore because there are roadways that go over the water 
almost at level. So with heavy rains or a high tide combined with heavy rains, the water can actually go over the roads. So, you know, again, very low elevation for most of the eastern shore, but comparatively where our last episode took place in Chicoutine, Virginia, that has an out elevation of three feet. Um, today's story, it's averaging, or the highest point in Cecil County is 535 feet, so higher. Um, and it's important, too, because when we look at elevation of a plane, it's you know, the elevation above sea level, not elevation above the ground. So it might be flying at an altitude of a certain number, but it's actually closer to the ground because they're flying on elevation or around elevated land. Now, also in this area of the eastern shore, um, it was just outside of Port Deposit, Maryland, and that actually borders the Susquehanna River, and that's a really beautiful location. Um, if you know, if you know, you are familiar with Pennsylvania, a lot of people will probably equate the Susquehanna River with that state but it does run through part of Maryland. Now, also, um, the United States Naval Training Center in Bainbridge, Maryland, was also around this area. It operated for around 50 years and, again, was just located outside of Port Deposit. Now, unfortunately, the site was deactivated, and a lot of the property has actually been gutted by fire and other types of destruction. But as you may have seen or heard so far on this channel, water is a huge, huge asset to this area. So it kind of makes sense that there's a Naval Training Center right there. Um, I'm going to go ahead and add links to both pictures that if you go into the description, if you just want to click on those, or if you're watching, I'll go ahead and add them in as well. Um, and credits will be beneath each photo. Now, of course, the photos I'll be showing mostly are of today, you know, and how the land looks today, but it's still breathtaking. And if you transport yourself, you know, back to 1947, there was even more open land. Now, just to kind of get a feeling for the times, flying in itself was still pretty new, at least as far as commercially. Um, aviation was really growing and in at least the way I see it, it was transitioning from its toddlerhood to adolescence, you know, and it felt all of the growing pains that normally come along with any type of growth. Now, if you're anything like me, the thought of flying on a plane in 1947 is a little fear-inducing, and even though I'm not really afraid of flying. What many of us may not realize is that the first commercial flight and first commercial airline actually happened at the same time, on January 1st, 1914. So this is well more than a century ago. And though it was more of a marriage between aviation and maritime, maritime industries, um, this flight took place on a seaplane um, from St. Petersburg to Tampa, Florida. Now, trust me, the plane would not have broken any records as far as speed, um, it took 23 minutes to fly 21 miles, but comparatively, this was pretty big. You know, everything does have to start somewhere, and so, so did commercial aviation. But looking at the transportation of that time, 
23 minutes was a huge improvement. So the two cities are relatively close together. If you tried to travel by rail or car or boat, it could take anywhere from 12 hours, 20 hours, or two hours. So no matter how you look at it, you're cutting down time. Now, while this airline really didn't last very long, it did set a stage for the flying public. Aviation grew with both world wars, and that's why I really consider this time period a transition from toddler to adolescence rather than infancy to toddler. I think it really was more progressed at this point, but still had a long way to go. Now, through necessity, and not always safely, aviation did begin to grow by leaps and bounds because of the world wars, at least in my opinion. Now, while today I'm very secure and confident about the safety of flying, knowing that if I do have to travel a long distance, I have more of a chance of getting in a car accident driving there than if I flew. But, however, given the distance that I live from an airport, driving to the airport would be another matter as well and would also be more dangerous than flying. Now, rather than going into a lengthy history of you know, all of aviation, I will now turn to the airline that was involved in this accident. The airline was Eastern Airlines, and it was one of the earliest established airlines operating from 1926 to 1991. Now, just as a coincidence, or maybe not really since a lot of companies are incorporated in Delaware, Eastern Airlines was incorporated out of Delaware, even though many of its offices were in Florida. Now, Eastern Airlines really has a storied past. Um, you know, I'm, I watch a lot of documentaries, so I was more familiar with some of the other accidents I've um, read or watched um, or listened to about this. But Eastern Airlines was actually run by a World War I flying ace. It also became the first official airline of Walt Disney. It also had an offshoot airline named Eastern Airlines Shuttle that was at one point bought by Donald Trump. The airline experienced strikes and ultimately ended with a bankruptcy filing with dozens of major events happening in between these time periods. I could probably do a whole mini-series on Eastern Airlines, but you know it doesn't really fit into Delaware. You know they're incorporated there, but they're really very interesting. Um, so, just to highlight a couple of the accidents that I was aware of, um, one of the most famous happened in 1972, where the plane was pretty much brand new, and when they went to drop the landing gear, well, the light didn't come on, and the crew became so distracted on pretty much troubleshooting that little teeny bulb that they completely lost orientation of where they were and they actually flew into terrain. They crashed because they were so, so focused on this little light bulb. This flight has a ton of documentaries out there ranging from just a short, um, pretty much infomercial type um, documentary on the flight up to a full length, you know, 45 or 50 minute episode. 
Um, another crash occurred almost two years later in September of 1974. Um, now, this plane actually had the father and two brothers of a pretty famous comedian right now. And for privacy, I'm not going to you know, say specifically who it was, but he lost his father and two brothers on that crash in 1974. Um, there were 78 passengers and four crew members on the plane, and it crashed just short of the runway and, you know, immediately killed were 72. Then there were three people who died later from their injuries. So, you know, just looking at you know, any crash, it kind of brings home that you know, this, this person lost a father and two siblings. Now, I've lost a sister, and while it was somewhat sudden, it was not completely unexpected. So I cannot imagine what it would be like to have a family member, have a loved one aboard either of these flights or any type of accident flight or you know, any sudden loss where you know, someone that you love is taken away from you in just a blink of an eye. Now, looking through the rest of the history of this, airline. In total, they had 22 fatal crashes. They had 24 non-fatal incidents. Now, I just want to give a hint about how sturdy sometimes these planes were built. Um, in another incident, which took place um, the previous year from what we'll be discussing today, it was December of 1946, that this particular event occurred, you actually had an Eastern Airlines flight collide with a Universal Airlines flight at about 2,000 feet elevation. Both planes ended up landing. Um, the EAL or Eastern Airlines flight landed at Washington National, and the others went. The other landed at Phillips Field in Aberdeen, Maryland, which will actually come up with our um, story today too. So um, the the term you may see sometimes is the Aberdeen Proving Ground, and Phillips Field was actually a military field on the Aberdeen Proving Ground. So it, it really goes to show that this was, you know, these planes were made very sturdily, that they were able to survive and to land after collision. Both of them were able to. And unfortunately, there were also four hijackings that occurred with this airline. But looking at these accidents, many of them occurred you know, earlier on in the lifetime of the airline. The plane today that we'll be discussing is um, a it was a McDonnell Douglas, and that was a C-54 Skymaster. Now, with most planes, there are certain variants, so this one was considered the Skymaster. But just to give you some info about the C-54 in general, is that um, you know, the plane itself had four engines. It had been used um, during a couple of different wars, World War II and Korean War for cargo. Um, now, of course, the Korean War hadn't taken place at this point, but um, you know, that's what it had been used for in the past. Um, now, also, it was the first used to transport one of our presidents, as well as other dignitaries. And FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was you know, the one who used the airline or air, this particular airplane 
initially. And actually, coincidentally, he's the one who gets to choose the site of Bainbridge Naval Training Center, which will come up um, in this episode as well. Um, and as another link to Delaware or the Eastern Shore, um, it was also used for airlifts to Berlin, and many of those flights originated out of Dover Air Force Base. Um, the flight today is Flight 605, and it took off from Newark, New Jersey, and was heading towards Miami. But it would not make it and crashed just outside of Port Deposit, Maryland, in Bainbridge. Now, all people on board were killed. And up to that point in time in American and even North American aviation, it was the worst airline crash, at least commercial airline crash. So the flight itself took off just after 5 o'clock. It was at 5.04 that the plane um, took off. Now, at that point in time, you know, it still should have been plenty you know, light outside so that the pilots wouldn't necessarily need to worry about daylight diminishing until a little bit later. Um, the report that I read said that there should have been at least one more hour of daylight left. Just living from around here and looking at the time of year, it, I would even say it would be visible or there would be a good amount of light for even longer than that. Now, just behind this flight, um, there was another one taking off. It was about three miles behind, and that was using a DC-3. Um, so that flight itself actually carried members of the Civil Aeronautics Board. They had been in New York investigating a crash of a DC-4 that um, was flying out of LaGuardia, and that had occurred about 23 hours before the accident that we'll be discussing today. So, you know, while researching this crash, I did come across pictures in newspapers where of newspapers that had, you know, one crash being the headline with information on the other crash to the right. So, you know, these happened very, very close to each other. Um, and I have to wonder how the investigators on that plane behind our accident flight must have been feeling when... They looked out and realized that the plane in front of them, made by the same manufacturer as the plane that they were in, and the plane that they were investigating the day before, had just crashed. So, Flight 605, shortly after taking off, hit its cruising altitude of 4,000 feet, according to the flight plan. Some sources say they were flying at 6,000 feet but the vast majority of sources say 4,000. And since that was the flight plan, I'm going to go with that. Um, now, today, if we think of commercial flights, we can easily think that they're going to be flying over 30,000 feet. Now, with this particular flight, as they were going over Philly, Philadelphia, um, the pilot said that there was, everything was well. You know, he checked in and everything was fine. Now, Philadelphia is about 70 to 80 miles from Fort Deposit if you're driving, so it's still pretty, pretty close. But at around 5.40 p.m., there were witnesses on the ground and actually in the air because of the flight behind them. They had to see this horrific sight. The plane started to angle down into a very sharp dive, and it crashed. 
The witnesses could not see if the pilots were trying to pull out, but really things happened so fast and from so far away, you really couldn't see if they had or hadn't. I'm going to have to feel that we can assume that the pilots did try, but of course, you know, none of this was really viewable by the witnesses, but what witnesses did report seeing was an explosion that seemed to tear apart the some of the fuselage and the tail section from the plane. Also, there was an explosion when the plane slammed into the ground and it left, you know, again, everybody on the plane was killed. The impact was so fierce that windows rattled up to five miles away. Now, the CAB team, they were quick. They were pulling double duty. They actually had the pilot fly around the site to get an idea of what they would be dealing with and later landed at the Aberdeen Proving Ground. Um, and they were able to get transportation to the site of the accident. And, you know, in that one day, in a matter of 24 hours, they were starting a second investigation. Now, to me, undoubtedly, this would probably be the most immediate boots-on-the-ground investigation ever. And I guess you can't even say boots-on-the-ground because the investigation began while they were actually in the air. Seeing the crash initially um, and then landing to do further investigation. However, just to point out, because of the angle, the distance that they were away, and the fact that they were about 500 feet higher in elevation, they weren't really able to get a good read on the angles and trajectory of the plane. So, you know, it, it wasn't perfect, but still, as far as an investigative tool, you have trained witnesses right there. The CAB's chief, was actually, chief of investigation was actually on board. So communities anywhere in the U.S. were really ill-equipped and were less knowledgeable about how to handle an airplane crash. I mean, this really was not happening. I would like to say that often, but considering when it just happened the day before, it was something that was occurring. But as in most communities, when there's a need for help, people started to come from all around and were willing to do whatever they needed to do. Three fire departments, the Port Deposit Department, which is also known as Water Witch, I don't know why, um, just it's known as Water Witch, um, the Haverty Grace and the Perryville um, Fire Departments all came. Um, the police officers came from towns and about a thousand men from the Naval Training Center were awoken if they were asleep um, or pulled out of their bunks and they were brought to the site. Now the area was very forested and there was thick brush all around. And as soon, though, as they were able to get to the site, the rescuers really could see very quickly that this was not going to be a rescue mission. It was going to have to be recovery. The very first first responder on the site was the police chief of the Haverty Grace Police Department. And he reported that he found the plane because he saw another plane flying around overhead. So we now know that was the CAB team doing like an initial reconnaissance to see what they were up against. The police chief said, I'll never forget the horror of that first glimpse I received when I entered the clearing. 
The tangled wreckage of the airliner was a blazing inferno, and I realized that all of the passengers must surely be dead. Now, many people were out and about that day. It was Memorial Day, and this holiday did allow for many people to be free um, to respond to the scene or be outside to witness the accident. A young woman named Jeanette Nesbitt Hellyer remembers that her father sped to the scene, but when he returned, he was not the same man that had left. What he saw, the wreckage with fire, carnage, and human, human suffering would stay with him and his daughter, as well as so many more for the rest of their lives. The medical examiner, Robert Dotson, reported that none of the deceased could be identified visually. Now, against the same backdrop, a pair of ballet slippers, playbills from a theater, and a case of ballpoint pens just littered the ground almost undamaged. Bill Denny was only 17 years old at this time, but he was a trainee at the Naval Training Station. Now, he recalled being told that he needed to secure the area so that onlookers would not get thrilled. He says a vivid memory that stays with him was the sight of a one-year-old's body, unrecognizable, being carried away. Now, in the aftermath of this, relatives of the victims visited a makeshift morgue at the Naval Training Commissary to try to identify their loved ones. And personally, I don't know how they could have gotten through it because I'm remembering the words of that medical examiner. Now, some relatives at least as of about 10 years ago, we're still trying to get in contact with you know, Cecil County and the Historic Society. Mike Dixon, who is the county historian, said that relatives still call him. But again, this article was from 10 years ago. So I wonder how many relatives uh, may still be around mourning their lost loved ones. The president of EAL, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker, that World War I flying ace I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, he was actually the president at the time, and he made a vow that they would find out what happened, um, that it was of utmost importance. But I'm kind of looking at this from a current perspective. Proceedings on a lot of these investigations, as far as like hearings, um, actually would sometimes take place within a week or 10 days from the accident. Um, today, it would take months and months or even years to complete an investigation. This particular report was a total of nine pages, and that included a map and some other information that was just kind of redundant that's included on other reports. So, you know, this this was a really short report, which to me leaves a lot to be answered for. So, you know, looking at the way investigations are done today, and I know that this podcast is not about accident investigation, but I watch a ton of engineering, maritime, aviation shows, so I know that those investigations are very intensive. Um, this one will be a little frustrating for me um, because there is really no cause that they come up with. There is not a definitive reason that this accident happened. 
And one of the things that I like looking at is looking at a scenario, looking at an event, and finding out what happens so that we can prevent it from happening again. And that is actually the whole point of aviation safety, maritime safety, you know, accident investigation. It's there to learn and prevent. So this kind of upsets me because we don't know whether or not the cause of this accident may have caused another accident in the future. So failure to find the cause of this accident, or any accident for that matter, can lead to other deaths. And I know I keep going back to you know, telling myself, how can I be judgmental about the limitations of that time period? Well, I will get into some things a little bit later um, about that video I happened to stumble upon while doing this research. And it does make me look at the CAB with a little bit more of a skeptical and cynical eye. Um, just remembering that today's NTSB or National Transportation Safety Board is a completely independent um, board. So what do they think may have occurred? Well, um, they didn't really think that there was a structural defect. Possibly there was, but they had a lot of reasons why they ruled them out. Um, weather was definitely ruled out. That could be seen. Um, so they were thinking, could it maybe be faulty maintenance and inspection as well as combination with a structural defect? Possibly. You know, there were just lots of things that they did go over in the report without managing to come up with a good solid answer. Some of the conclusions happen to fall within a idea that you can't prove a negative, meaning that there's no evidence to prove that something didn't happen, so you can't really prove it because there's no evidence. So it, finally, the cause was reported as, and I quote, a sudden loss of control for reason unknown resulting in a dive to the ground. So um, that's pretty much what everybody saw while you know on the ground and observing the plane. So what we do know is that trees were cut at about a 20 to 30 degree angle, and this allowed the investigative team to kind of track the route of the plane. The plane did hit the ground upside down, with the left wing just kind of dipping to hit the ground first. Now, Many people reported that there was an explosion in the air, and there was also what was described as a flash fire on the ground. It burned very quickly because there was minimal damage to the brush and shrubbery around it, but based on the medical examiner's observations, it would seem that this was very intense. Now, there were reports that the tail section detached first. And this was supported by the tail section being found about 300 yards from the main wreckage. Now, at the time, it, 300 yards was considered a distance away from the main wreckage, even though later in the report it says that, you know, it was primarily intact, that the plane was primarily intact. And the main wreckage was over an area of only 500 feet long and 150 feet wide. What we have to take a look at and consider is that, yes, this is a relatively small area with the tail only being 300 yards away. 
to put it in perspective of today's planes, because they're fa falling from a much higher height, um, going much faster, if this were to occur on a commercial plane now, we would expect to see a much, much larger debris field. So I'm not an engineer. I'm, I'm not going to say that I have any engineering knowledge or aeronautics knowledge. You know, I've just observed this through, you know, just other documentaries and some of the physics that I do remember from high school. Um, now, much of the investigation was done on site and Bainbridge Naval was in high demand at that time as their facilities were also used to examine and reassemble the pieces that they thought were important. Now, on a side note, for those who live here on the shore, I often think about how we're just so centrally located to a lot of things. Um, so many important locations, New York, Philadelphia, Annapolis, Baltimore and the Inner Harbor, Norfolk just to the south of us, DC to the west, and of course, Dover Air Force Base just kind of right there in the middle of everything. And, you know, I'm wondering on one hand that, you know, really, is this a coincidence of timing and location where these two accidents just kind of fell within the same time period and approximately the same location? You know, a plane going from New York to DC was following this accident plane. It just it seems like, what are the odds? But at the same time, when you think about the area, there is just so much going on around here. Now, as the investig investigators um, started the investigation, they set themselves up amongst their specialties and had assistance from other agencies, as well as airline industry representatives. So they were quickly able to interview witnesses while the memories were still fresh in their minds and hopefully before any of these witnesses could talk to each other and subconsciously influence the other one's memories. Now, with the report, there are many things that are speculative. Um, for one, a piece of the propeller was missing, but the investigation concluded that the propeller broke on impact and someone unknown stole the missing piece. Okay, um, there was not any more information provided about how they know it broke on impact, and what made them conclude that someone took the piece. Um, now, as far as specific parts, the report says that parts that failed were tested to determine why they failed. But not a lot of specifics on these parts. What tests did they run? Now, they actually did redo the flight. They recreated it, flying the same flight path with the same witnesses on the ground. And this was done at the same altitude of 4,000 feet um, at the same time of day and with the same weather conditions. They wanted to evaluate if the witnesses' statements changed significantly after seeing the recreation of the flight. According to the report, there really were no significant changes from the original statements. But, at least in my opinion, there were significant discrepancies in the original statements. Some witnesses described it as a steep dive. Others said it looked kind of like a stepped dive, almost like it was going down steps. One said that the tail came off higher in flight, while others said it was closer to the ground. A conclusion was made that the dive was made into an almost half circle motion sideways, so like a sideways arc, 
while others thought the plane went up, you know, kind of took a lurch up before going down. However, with a nine-page report, information on how they decided whose statements to really go with, it really, really didn't come up in the report. Um, So there's no mention on how they tried to reconcile these differences. Now, and yet another open-ended statement, the report said that an exhaustive investigation continued for months. Field and Washington investigators of the board proved manufacturers' records, maintenance reports, and maintenance methods of air carriers using this model aircraft and the maintenance history of the subject aircraft, end quote. And that really was it as far as how long the investigation took. This took only about two pages to outline the investigation. Now, reviewing the theories actually did take quite a bit longer. Now, during my recounting of the theories, I'm going to use a mix of direct quotes and you know, summing up the actual um, the actual results. Um, sometimes it's just best to use the direct wording, while other times, to be more direct, I'm just going to try to sum it up. But rather than saying, this is a quote, this is not a quote, um, I'm going to go ahead and just let you know that some things are kind of intermixed with quotes. Now, occasionally I may mention that something is a quote just because it seems to be of significant importance. I also want to go over a few terms that you'll hear a lot um, during this. Um, The term elevators does not mean that the plane was a double-decker. An elevator is a primary flight control surface that controls movement about the lateral axis of an aircraft. So it, you know, kind of controls whether it goes up or down in the movement. Now, also, there will be something called a gust lock, also known as a flight control lock. Now, this is a means by which control surfaces on an aircraft not in flight can be prevented from landing movement caused by wind, jet blast, or propeller wash, and thus possible damage to the surface, attachment points, or control system. So, in other words, parts that are meant to move, if this lock is not on, and a gust of wind comes, it can cause damage. So when it's on the ground, they have the gust lock on. And lastly, feathering. And this refers to propellers. Blades on an, you know, of, of the propellers can be rotated so that they're basically, they're kind of laying flat or parallel to the airflow. And what this does is it stops the propellers from moving, and that helps reduce the drag. Because if the propellers were still moving um, when an engine failed, that could make it even harder to control because it was creating like a friction or a drag. Now, getting into the theories, which I know will be a lot of technical information, but I will try to be as straightforward as possible. The first theory actually mentioned in the report is one that I'm going to save for last. So to get to the second theory, um, it was disintegration of the horizontal tail surface surface due to flutter of the elevator or rudder rudder tail. Now, they pretty much said this, this couldn't have happened because the elevator tabs were still attached and they were tight. The rudder tab had detached 
but according to the report, this was determined to have been because it was hit by another piece of debris and that caused it to detach. This, however, did not mean that the rudder tab vibrating couldn't have caused disintegration on the tail. So they really said it was just undetermined. It was a back and forth. Well, this is a theory, but it couldn't have happened because of this, but it still could have happened, is really what it said. The next was that there was an explosion in the stabilizer tips and that that explosion had a domino effect. Now, it was found that there was an inflammable fluid had somehow been in one of the stabilizers at some point because residue was found. However, we don't know specifically what that fluid was. There's just some speculation on it. Also, um, the end of a stabilizer—sorry, the end of a left stabilizer was bent out, showing that there was a force that could have blown from the inside out. Um, but investigators ruled out this theory because. Just because there was fluid in one doesn't mean that there were fluid in others. The term not necessarily was used a few times. So without saying it directly, this would lead me to surmise that they didn't think that the little residue in only one stabilizer would have been enough to do that much damage. I also just want to clarify something that was not said in this theory, but I think should be covered. The term used to describe the fluid was inflammable. And so, you know, first, I would like to know what this fluid was, other than speculation. But another thought could be that if the liquid was inflammable, then how could it catch fire or explode? But something can be non flammable or inflammable, but still be combustible. The difference is, and I learned this from research on a previous episode about a crude carrier collisions. To quote, flammable and combustible liquids are liquids that can burn. I think we both, we all pretty much know that. But generally speaking, flammable liquids will ignite or catch on fire and burn easily at normal working temperatures. Combustible liquids have the ability to burn at temperatures that are usually above working temperatures. So um, going back to the theory, because the premise of this theory would be that this was an inflammable fluid that exploded, it just leads me to believe, as you know, a layperson, not anyone trained in this, I have to wonder then if it was a combustible liquid that would catch fire if it was at a much higher temperature, which airplane parts can create. I feel the report should have been more clear, but we're looking at it from 19 or 2021 eyes, not 1947. So according to the report, this theory was ruled out because of no ignition source, and also that there was not enough damage done to the thinner parts of the stabilizer rip, and they felt that that would have shown damage if there was an explosion. And lastly, this theory was ruled out because the only fluid residue that they could think would have been there was from a paint remover. And that had been used over 3,000 flight hours earlier, so they termed it rather unlikely. So, on my personal observation on this theory and other theories that they that they purport is that highly unlikely is a term that's used throughout. So, in other words, nothing is definitely ruled out. Everything's just still kind of left in play. I'm going to go through this next one kind of quickly because. 
there was this very, very long explanation really to come out to say it could not happen. The theory thought that possibly a machinist who was putting a pin in, a pin belt in, went too far, and basically because the pin was not where it was supposed to be, it failed. Um, because they did find one bolt with a lot of shear, so that's why they came up with this conclusion. However, however, after a bunch of tests and doing all these you know, things, which were actually pretty thorough for this investigation, they deemed that unlikely because the bolts were made by a machine itself. Things were at a very exacting level, whereas the machinist actually would not be the one who bore that in to the part. So, you know, they really didn't think that there could have been a man-made error in that way. Um, also, they said the other bolts were, bolts were really strong, that they were, you know, beyond what, um, you know, what they were estimated to hold, that they had enough strength, so those other bolts could have held on. You also have the bird theory. I think there's always a bird theory, but there were no feathers, remains, or any other indicator that a bird hit the plane. Um, next is that a part came off of a plane, struck a surface, and led to a chain of events. Again, some of my least favorite terminology. They said that this really wasn't plausible because, in short, all parts that conceivably could have fallen off were found in the areas of the main wreckage or were accounted for. So they used the word conceivable, and, you know, just in my experience, not just review of this accident, is you have to sometimes look at the unexpected. What if a part of a part fell off, a cargo door handle that hit just the right spot to cause a spark or make a hole? You know, again, not an engineer, but sometimes accidents happen that engineers don't even conceive of happening but they occur. So when these unconceivable or inconceivable things happen, destruction ensues. The next theory is pretty much just a whole room of dominoes that would have had to fall in order to make this happen. Um, so again, to try to summarize, um, and the Senate Review Committee even said they felt that it was some type of maintenance issue. Um, you know, I, I think during the review, Probably they would be shaking their heads at this particular theory, saying, okay, next. Um, to sum it up, the theory was that there was a point of failure. But what this point is, we don't know, but it happened outside of the torsion box on the right elevator. Now, this was concluded because the elevator hinge was still on the casting attached to a bolt, which was attached to the bolt by a pin. And... Basically, the underside of the eye bolt scuffed some areas, and they determined that these marks could have only been made um, from if the inside edge of the casting had been free. So you know, they're trying to look at possibly if you know damage had been made by like a gust of wind. Um, the investigation determined that the indentations or marks shown had to be there because of the resistance, so the hinge must have still been attached to the stabilizer. They found that 10 rivets had been sheared through the torque. So the reason that for this to have occurred, the plane would have had to have experienced high wind, um, possibly the gust lock that I mentioned earlier 
um, was turned off, which allowed for that um, that buffeting of you know, certain parts of the plane to cause damage. And you know, this would mean that there would be fatigue or weakening around that torsion box. And so that's why they did kind of isolate it and say that it was, if there was a part that detached, it could have been some type of failure around the torsion box. But, you know, they said that other than wind, it could have been possibly another plane, you know, the, the drag from another plane, or maybe even that another plane hit this plane and, you know, that's what happened. But they went through all of the reports, the maintenance reports, and there weren't any reports of anything like this happening. Now, my thought is, okay, yes, if there was a ground collision, there would be a report on that. But if someone, say, did not set the gust lock and it wasn't caught, nobody would necessarily know that there had been damage due to that. Um, really quick theory was that um, one of the control cables released with such energy that, you know, it causes chain reaction. The way I'm going to describe it is if you think about um, tug of war, if you have both teams really pulling as hard as they can and the middle of that rope breaks, you're going to have everybody go falling down. There's a lot of energy that's then being dispersed amongst everybody on that rope. Now, if the rope is just slowly wearing away, if one strand at a time starts to break, then the tension is not as tight. And when it breaks, you will not have as many or maybe even have none of the competitors fall to the ground. So they tested this cable and they did not see how it could have broken with a force so strong that it would have caused the catastrophic chain of events and that if it was more of a gradual breakage, the force would not have been strong enough. Um, they also ruled out elevator overbalancing. That's where, you know, the plane starts to go out of balance and the elevators try to you know, adjust, but they make too much of an adjustment. Now, a couple parts here, and this is where things get interesting. Um, so, we're looking at this plane. There's been another accident 23 hours earlier. And from the very beginning of that accident, it was pretty apparent about our old friend, the gust lock, was still in place. So, in other words, on that flight, they did not disengage the gust lock, which meant that parts of the plane that really needed to be moving were not moving. So that, of course, can make the plane uncontrollable. So the theory here went that one of the pilots decided they wanted to experiment, that they had already heard that the accident at LaGuardia was most likely caused due to the gust lock being engaged during flight um, and that the pilots had not disengaged it before they took off. So the theory just says that, you know, one of the pilots wondering if, you know, a gust lock really could be engaged during flight and what would happen, you know, they decided to do that while they were in midair with passengers and their lives at stake. 
you know, they decided to do this little experiment because they were concerned about the gust block. But, yeah, um, to me, this was absolutely mind-boggling, you know, that a captain, a pilot, would think it's okay to experiment while you're mid-air. And I kind of have to think I actually did see an air crash investigation where somebody pulled a fuse mid-flight because they thought it would work to fix the problem. It did not. So I, I said, okay, really, though, I don't think that someone's going to do this. They're not going to experiment and you know, turn the gust block on to engage it during mid-flight. But about four months after Flight 605 near El Paso, Texas, somebody did just that. Um, now, the El Paso flight was flying at 8,000 foot altitude, but because of you know, sea level, how high it was, it was about 4,000 feet above the ground. Now, the El Paso flight did not crash, thankfully, but there was only about three or 400 feet there. Um, the biggest difference that they figured why was because the propellers feathered on the El Paso flight, and so that meant that the um, the engines were not at full power. So if they had been at full power, they probably would have hit the ground, but they did not, thankfully. Um, so this flight was an American Airlines flight, also incorporated in Delaware, by the way. Um, and it's it's honestly amazing. So the CAB um, did say they thought that the captain of Flight 605 had better sense than to do something like this mid-flight. But the El Paso accident, I had to find out more about it. I looked up the report, which was only four pages um, total, but two pages of that was information. The other two were just kind of auxiliary auxiliary information. Um, so there were three pilots on board, and actually each of the pilots was a captain in their own right, but one was considered the pilot in charge, co-pilot, and an observer. So Captain Sisto was the pilot in charge, Captain Beck was observing, and Captain Logan was the co-pilot. Now, just after takeoff, Captain Sisto said he wanted to change positions with the observing pilot, Beck. Beck then, once he got seated, experienced the inability to control the plane. The plane started to climb. No matter what he tried, he could not get the nose down again. Now, this continued when, totally outside of his control, it started to nose down, creating this kind of sideways arc and inverting. Now, remember, Flight 605 actually inverted, too. But the pilot was able to save the flight before impact. And, frankly, this was Captain Logan. He did it all by himself. Because the other two pilots didn't have their seatbelts on, so when it inverted, they were kind of thrown all around the cockpit, as were many passengers thrown around the cabin of the plane. The pilots initially said that there must have been a problem with the autopilot. So the CAB goes to the trouble, time, and expense of testing things, and they find everything was fine. They followed back up with the pilots, and they changed their story to say they had not actually engaged the autopilot yet during the flight. But when Sisto, Captain Sisto, changed from the captain or pilot in charge to the jump seat, he purposely engaged the gust lock. 
he did not tell Beck or Logan of this absolutely insane idea. When Logan and Beck were trying to save the plane, they called to Sisto to see if the autopilot was on, and he replied no. Now, Beck did have this idea that the only other possibility would be that the Gustloff was on. And he must have been confused, though, because nobody had engaged it during the flight. But Beck did try to reach to disengage it, but Sisto beat him to it. Now, this created another domino effect as all of these subsequent reactions caused a nose down position. Now, remember, the propellers did feather at this time in the flight, so thankfully, they were saved. Um, So, Logan was actually commended for his ability to save the plane without really all of the information, whereas Sisto was put up for a review to have his pilot's license revoked or suspended. The one um, news article read on October 17th of that year that the curiosity of a veteran pilot who wanted to find out what would happen if he engaged the gust block of a DC-4 passenger plane while in flight caused the extraordinary situation on October 7th near El Paso, Texas. When a plane with 48 passengers and a crew of five flipped over on its back, the Civil Aeronautics Board reported today. So before we go into some other conclusions, you know, after that whirlwind there, um, there was one more theory, and it's one that I saved for last. And the reason why I did this is due both to archival evidence from other flights before this one, as well from an experience that another pilot had that same day. Now, Ernest Gann was that pilot. He wrote a book called Fate is the Hunger. And he said that he believes that the accident was caused by the unporting of the elevators due to a missing hinge bolt. Now, you know, my first thought was, okay, is he someone, you know, who's entering the, you know, what you would call your twilight years and he wanted to write write a book um, and, you know, this was a big incident that happened and he brought it up. But no, this was not the case. Ernest Gann, um, he was an aviator, a writer of not just this book. He was a sailor and he actually was known for his writing as much as for his aviation. Um, some of his novel, novels were the, um, named The High and Mighty and The Island in the Sky, and these were both turned into movies starring John Wayne. Um, you know, we have The Fate is the Hunter book um, that's actually considered by a lot of people to be one of the greatest aviation books ever written. Um, let's see, he had some other novels that were made into movies. Um, one was um, Fiddler's Green and Soldier of Fortune, um, they were made into movies. So, I mean, this man was not just someone trying to get attention. He was the, he was really a Renaissance man who did so much. He actually worked on Broadway. Um, you know, he, he just did a lot. I could probably spend days and days going through everything that he did but he was actually friends with Burgess Meredith, um, who you might um, remember him from some other movies as well. You know, just, it was amazing. So um, he has so many aviation accolades. I'm not going to go into them all, except for this last, um, one of the last ones where Flying Magazine 
ranked him as the 34th of the 51 heroes of aviation. That was a list he put out in 2013. So, in other words, this guy knows what he's talking about. I think he knew what he was doing in a plane. But, unfortunately, unless there's more evidence in an investigation box somewhere, we may never know what happened. Remember, there was no CBR or DVR either. So, they really didn't have much to go by. Um, now, the theory that Gann put forth, and this is the archival evidence um, that I was referring to, is there was a one-quarter inch diameter shear pin in the left outboard elevator hinge, was not located, and as a similar aircraft had experienced severe vibration of the tail group because of this pin being out, it was suggested that possibly this was the cause of the unporting of the elevators and the destruction of the airplane. However, there is strong evidence to indicate that the shear pin was intact and in place at the time of the unporting because, and the reasons they really provide are a lot of assumptions. Um, one of the assumptions is that some of the impressions made were symmetrical. So they didn't think that would have happened if there had been shearing. Um, it mentioned some of the bending of the stabilizer bar and what they would have expected to see there. But based on all of the other theories as well, most of them had a lot of speculation. This does as well. I don't think that you could really rule this out um, you know, based on pretty much there weren't any tests done to say whether or not that this was a valid argument or not. Um, so, based on Gann's experiences, I wonder if you know the shear pin was out. That it tended, it seems, to fall out with a lot of vibration, which then creates other issues. So, if I had to you know, say one theory or another. I would probably go with this one just because there were other experiences. The only other possibility that I can see, you know, being a layperson was if the pilot did decide to put the gust block in place or to engage it, which I really can, my heart says that the pilot didn't do it, but as you could see with the other flight, some pilots would, so we can't rule that out 100%. But my heart is saying more of what Gann experienced. So this is kind of scary and frustrating because there's absolutely no conclusions on this report. Um, the Senate report did state that they considered faulty maintenance and inspection were involved. Well, that's kind of a broad statement. So again, nothing was really learned either way. Um, so I've already said what the probable cause was, that it was loss of control for reasons unknown resulting in a dive to the ground. The recommendations or corrective actions that they made really were just a litany of items to make sure that the elevators and rudders and hinges, all of those things were checked on a schedule to check for fatigue. Now, while it's great that they put these in place, it still did not give us a solid conclusion in this case. So do we know exactly what happened? No. 
was there a complete report done? Yeah. Kind of. It was complete for its time. Even though the use of terms such as conceivable and you know, not likely just kind of leave me in awe to be used in a report. But I did mention that documentary that I happened to see, the one about the CAB. Um, that was on a YouTube channel called Barely Sociable. And I'll have that linked in the description. It just happened to be perfect timing while, you know, I was listening to the channel. I was typing things up here. And he mentioned the CAB. So, in air crash investigations, currently, we have the NTSB, which is, is the National Transportation Safety Board, and the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. And they don't always see eye to eye. The purpose of the FAA is to, quote, issue, issues and enforces regulations covering manufacturing, operating, and maintaining aircraft. Now, the NTSB is an independent federal accident investigation agency. And since its creation in 1967, the Safety Board's mission has been to determine the probable cause of transportation accidents and to formulate safety recommendations to improve transportation safety. So, two different sides that really should be going towards the same goal. Well, they operate independently for a reason. The NTSB wants answers. They're scientists. They want to know the cause of an event, and then they tell the FAA or the governing body of whatever type of transportation accident occurred, so they just don't deal with the FAA. It's you know, transportation. And they give suggestions on what they think will prevent the same thing from happening again. The NTSB does not care whose toes they happen to step on. They're scientists. So these are how the roles work now. But at the time of the CAB, I think the best way to describe it is they functioned as the FAA, the NTSB, and had a little bit of marketing mixed in there. Right? Maybe that's a little bit of an oversimplification, but let's take a look at this from the perspective of an accident just occurring. It would basically be the a, a board investigating itself. So if we look at it, let's just say the CAB would investigate something and they had not implemented a rule about something that they knew was a potential problem. They could cover it up. Um, or if there was a problem that they missed that they should have caught, again, they're investigating them themselves, they could cover it up. Also, if you're looking at the terms of economic regulation within um, the aviation industry, it was a time of growth, and that was part of their role, was to help airlines or the aviation industry grow. Not necessarily airlines, but if you want the industry to grow, you have to have the airlines grow. So in any given time, a decision that they make or a report that they file may impact at least one-third of their job role. So there were really a there was really a lot of incentive to maybe not give a full reporting. Now, can I say that this happened all the time? No. Can I say even that it was intentional? No. Um, there's things such as confirmation bias. And you know what this means is they go to an accident expecting to see one thing, 
so they kind of take the evidence and they work it so that it comes to that conclusion. They come to that conclusion before they even get the evidence, which is the exact opposite of what is supposed to happen during a crash. Now, this could be subconscious because, you know, the investigators don't want the issue or the cause to be something that they miss. Again, not saying this happened at all or how often it did happen, just that these are possibilities that occur when you have conflicts of interest. And that's why um, in you know, the legal profession, in medical profession, you can't have conflicts of interest. So thankfully now the agencies are independent and they focus on what their role is right there. I would like to think that the members of the CAB would recognize logically that if one aspect of their role fails, everything fails. You're not going to have a public that is secure and confident in the safety of aviation if you don't have a team that is thoroughly investigating accidents and coming with good, solid conclusions after that accident. It leaves too many things up in the air. So to have a team that, whether intentionally or not, are not doing a thorough investigation, then it's going to impact the growth of the industry. It is very rare that there is not a conclusion um, as to why an accident actually occurred, and this is one of the few where there is no known cause. And so in the back of my mind, I will always have to wonder that since there were two accidents so incredibly close together, not just in time frame, but even in place and in the proximity of where the government made regulations about this industry, where the investigative boards were actually stationed out of in D.C., that the investigators, you know, not really finding any true fault, left this little bit of a dangling carrot out there that it was the pilot that did something that caused the crash. This kind of puts the airline industry itself and the oversight, you know, out of the mix. It says, okay, everything we did was right, everything the industry did was right, but unfortunately there was a human factor there. To me, that's what what I'm thinking. As you know, there's really no solid fault found, but you know what, this did happen on another plane, and so you know, it's it's not the industry's fault. To me, that actually, you know, as a member of the public, would make me even more concerned that you would have a pilot who did something like that. So I don't think, looking at it from a perspective of decades later, that I could really find this report comforting. Now, we kind of ended the investigation with what we can conclude with. But the community itself was scarred. The loved ones who were lost, their family members, all scarred and left to heal after this tragedy. So years later, Jenny Hillier still remembers this day. She recognizes the pain that those who lost their families um, and also the burdens of the first responders had to carry throughout the years. 
So she actually reached out to the company that actually owns the land where the accident took place. And that's called the Stewart Companies. And they did put together a marble obelisk as a memorial for the flight. Now, this happened many, many years later, actually about 60 years later. And so when it was time to be dedicated, she did try to find relatives, um, you know, of survive or sorry, relatives of um, the victims of the crash. But she had a hard time tracking down. Um, she says she thought part of it was probably because of name changes throughout the years, you know, people getting married. And the only one that she really could find was one of the first responders. Remember Denny, the 17-year-old from the Naval Training Center? He was he represented the first responders there. He was the only one there. Um, and being only 17 at the time, he may have been one of the only ones still available to come. He was 81 at the time of um, the, the dedication. And that's why this memorial was so important, so that nobody forgets those who did pass away and the impact of the crash to everyone involved. The obelisk helped to keep their memory alive. Now, Hillier, um, she did contact Denny, like I said, and what Denny did is he took things a step further. Um, he actually contacted the governor of Maryland, Martin O'Malley, and O'Malley did, um, did write up a proclamation that Denny read at the dedication. So from the article I read um, and the interview that Denny gave, he was really touched by that because you know, so many years after this occurred, you know, over 60 years, he didn't feel or didn't think that that many people still cared. So he was really touched that he could get to read that proclamation at the dedication. So, like I said, this kind of ends the investigation. It's still very, very frustrating that there's no actual conclusion. It would be really great if there was any, you know, evidence somewhere that someone could review and you know, maybe try to come up with the actual reason. You know, if pictures were taken, you know, just it would be good to get a retrospective of if the industry could have advanced even quicker if the cause of this accident was known. So, in other words, to have a good, solid answer as to why this crash occurred, flying public would feel a little more secure knowing that that reason was taken care of. We'll never know at this point, I don't think, but never hurts to try. Who knows, I might even try to reach out to some people to see if they have any information. Like I said, I watch a ton of documentaries, so... Uh, <laughs> Now, if you do have any ideas of you know, types of content that you would like to hear about, um, I leave all of my contact information in the description of the podcast or YouTube video as well. So probably Facebook and email are my quickest turnarounds. I don't really use Twitter a lot, um, but I do have a page. But I really appreciate everyone being patient with me getting my next episode out. Um, I hope that you found this content informative and found it interesting as I do. Um, it's really, really something that I'm passionate about learning. 
So um, please feel free to send any ideas um, about the Delmarva um, area. If you have any ideas, whether it's true crime or disaster related, I'd really appreciate that. Um, but I do try to post content about every two weeks, sometimes a little longer, sometimes a little less, depending on how much research there's to be done, or as in the case of this week, you know, um, family being under the weather. So I hope that I will talk to everybody soon. You know, so I'm hoping everybody will come back for another episode. And everyone have a great rest of your week. Bye-bye.